Hello and welcome from wherever you are and whenever you're listening, morning, afternoon, evening, or twilight hours. You have arrived at the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. How do I know that? Well, simple. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. If you're a regular listener, the sound of my voice is the clue that you have arrived. This is your first experience. Do not worry. You have left the physical world you once knew behind. By exposing your auditory senses to this experience, you have left that world for a new place. A place called the Spinner Rack, outside of space and time, in a little corner of a pocket universe. And it's from here that we talk about my top five books from DC Comics this week, just like every week. To start things off, I've chosen Harley Quinn number 72, an amazing story called California, or Death, Chapter 3. Now, in this story written by Sam Humphreys, with art by Abel, colors by Hi-Fi, Dave Sharp on the letters, Guillaume March and John Kelly's on the cover, with Frank Cho and Sabine Rich providing the variant cover. Our story picks up with Harley Quinn. You know, it's a little squeak to my voice as we talk about Harley, because it seems like talking about Harley is never an easy thing to do. There is no direct line, straight trajectory to her stories. There is often a jumbled, meandering wander that creates its own adventure and is a signature of Harley Quinn. In this example, we see Harley not only in Los Angeles, but teaming up with Booster Gold, who made a recent appearance in the series and is a L.A. regular trying to help her out. What she need help with? Well, Harley came to Los Angeles only to find that one of her nearest and dearest friends, Alicia, who was a famous professional wrestler, suffered a horrible fate. And it's to Harley Quinn's belief that this was caused because of a powerful amulet she carried, known as the Jade Feather. Harley is also saddled with the guilt of trying to deal with Alicia's daughter, who is now an orphan. And at the end of last issue, Harley thought she had the best idea in the world by taking on Babyface, the gentleman who is in charge of the wrestlers, only to find herself getting pummeled in the ring by super-powered, muscle-bound wrestlers. Thankfully, for both Harley and myself, the aforementioned Booster makes an appearance, rescues her, gets treated poorly in the process, and then proceeds to play her faux-husband-slash-lover at a wealthy socialite party, which is where Harley is able to get closer to at least one answer, which is... What's the party for? What's the money for? What's the end game? Which leads her to a very rich and famous real estate developer. Someone that she believes is the brute of all the evil, but who on the surface is a problem for Booster to come to grips with. There's no motive. There's very little opportunity. And without an MO, it's really difficult to develop a case or even better explain to say officers of the law 
or anyone with a legal authority, why it is you believe this one person is the root or cause of all of the suffering and responsible for criminal actions. There's a moment when Booster must make a decision that's the best for them both, and because of it, Harley will have to make a choice as to whether or not she believes what she believes so sincerely that she is willing to forge ahead even without Booster by her side. An interesting moment is the hesitation caused by his decision and the possibility that Harley Quinn might be in love with Booster Gold. A lot of great moments in this story. The art is adorable. It gives you this sense of bright, silly, wonderful, which is always my memory of Los Angeles, tempered by a stark, contrasting reality. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a bit of fun to be had for those of us who enjoy a little bit of levity. And the way that Booster seems to slide so naturally into partnering up with Harley makes moments when he says Goldie Quinn as their couple name. And you think to yourself, wow, it's not quite blue and gold, but at the same time, it's got a nice ring to it. I can't dance to it, but I certainly do consider the sound pleasing to the ear. Whether or not Goldie Quinn will be making a return appearance in next issue, it's really going to be up to what kind of a guy Booster Gold is and how closely he decided to keep his tabs on Harley, who just might be walking into a trap. This was a lot of fun for me and a great pick. I really have enjoyed what Sam Humphreys has done with Harley Quinn. And while I will admit this was not a character I originally got on board with or someone that I was reading that often, my exposure to her title through great efforts like the Spinner Rack have made it possible for me to understand and appreciate this amazing work. That's why I'm happy to start off episode number 55 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack with Harley Quinn number 72. Give it a solid 5 out of 5 and move into our second choice. And for that second choice, I went with Metal Men number 6. I really enjoyed seeing these classic characters brought to life by storytellers Dan Didio and Shane Davis. Dan Didio in this issue providing dialogue for the story titled Tina's Story. With art by Shane Davis, colors by Jason Wright, letters by Travis Lanham, an original cover by Davis DeLecky and Wright, and Walt Simonson with Trish Mulville providing the variant cover, both of which I thought were quite a delight. The first is a powerful image of, well, a very distraught platinum holding lipstick. The variant cover is a really fun reminder of all the wild and wacky adventures and the ways the metal men's, the metal men's, the metal men can twist themselves up into all sorts of contortions when it comes to solving that mystery. Now what I love about that is that with this issue, Tina is on a journey to uncover a mystery of her own related to a woman named Christina Novak. See, there's been a disruption occurring with the team 
especially regarding their leader, Will Magnus, and the arrival of a figure known as the Nth Metal Man, who has been replacing the response meters that the Metal Men use as the basis for their emotions. In many ways, it's their heart and slash soul. And it's part of their identity, something that Will has been responsible for, and yet not always taken responsibility for. It's something he created, but not something he's always willing to deal with in the way that it might need or deserve. Inth Metal Man has been changing their identities by removing and corrupting or altering the response meter, and the process has led to a division among the group. Platinum is one of the few who is trying to do what she can to understand who she is before agreeing to Intimidal Man's choice. This leads her to Upper Schenectady and where she discovers Christina. The challenge here is the realization that Christina does not want anything to do with Platinum or anything to do with Will Magnus, someone that she had to have a restraining order placed against because of his obsession. And they didn't really have much in common. It was something that they wanted to consider. And while explaining it, Christina realizes that many have already challenged why she would walk away from one of the world's smartest men. And yet the arrival of Platinum is the sort of exclamation point on the reason behind why it is she had to leave Will. It's because he's taken Christina's likeness and used it to model Platinum. She has a son. She has a life. She doesn't want anything to do with this. And this realization, shocking for Platinum as it is, reveals that who she is has always been based on someone else's idea of who she should be. This drives her, of course, back into the arms of the intimate man and the opportunity to make a choice, live the life that's been created for her, or find out who she really is. Now, one of the great things about the Metalmen is the way that they have been able to offer up a fun, lighthearted corner of the DC universe, something I equate with some of the wackier, zanier, and more fun characters and teams. Now, I'm not going to go out and say that this is a Doom Patrol or Challengers of the Unknown, but I do feel that because of how they were created, their structure, and their identities, there's always been a great whimsical quality to everything that's going on in their books, in their storyline, in each issue. That whimsical quality has met a harsh reality, and I'm really intrigued to see just how far Metal Men is going to explore the individual identities of each member and what this can, will, and should do for the team. I was really excited to pick up this book, read through it, and discover just what direction we're taking on, even as Dan Didio is no longer directly with DC Comics, but still collaborating on this story, which is a 12-issue maxi. I think it's a wonderful addition to episode number 55, this episode of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, and it's why I'm happy to make it my second choice and a great 5 out of 5 selection. With that, we're going to take a quick break. 
share some ads with you, let you know a bit of what's going on here at DC Comics News, all the great content we're providing, maybe pay a few bills. But when it's all said and done, you'll be right back here with me. We'll be checking out my third, fourth, and fifth choices here on episode number 55 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. Thanks for your patience. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News podcast. Here every week to talk everything DC. Movies, TV, comics, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News podcast. It's audio justice. (laughs) No, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) No. Why, hello there. I'm Seth Singleton, and I'm here to tell you about Mad Pup, a Harley Quinn cast. Three, two, one. Harley Quinn? Harley f***ing Quinn? What have we learned from this crazy show? Making bat shark repellent relevant since 1966. Oh, look, Cougar. And we've gone completely off the rails. I hear the bat signal. Shut up and bat them, nuts. I definitely do not in need of an adult-sized nemesis. Humans make good fertilizer. You can't f*** with Lois Lane. For f***'s sake. I'm a damn good cop. Lot of lasers. Mmm. Educational and informative. The DC Comics News Podcast Network presents... Mad Love. The Harley Quinn Cast. <laughs> Back to you, Seth. So, tell us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Or not. That's really up to all of you. F***ers. First, there was the DC Comics News Podcast. Then came the Spinner Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I am the Knight. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones. I am the night. And with that, our ad break comes to an end. And you're back here with me. DC Comics News Spinner Rack, episode number 55. Me, your host, Seth Singleton. Three more books for us to enjoy. My third choice, Justice League Odyssey, number 20. A wonderful story, Count Backward, with a script by Dan Abnett, colors by Rain Barreto, art by Cliff Richards, letters by And World Design, an original cover by Jose Ladrone, and a variant cover provided by Scan. I have loved Justice League Odyssey for all of the wonderful things it is willing to pursue. For starters, a mission that may or may not still have anything to do with the Doom Justice War, 
Perpetua and all of the things trying to destroy the universe. What it does still have to do with is the goal of Darkseid and his sepulchor to rebuild and rebirth the universe in the process, and in doing so, create it in his image. Now, we've seen him lie to the team, betray many of its members, corrupt Starfire, Azrael, and Cyborg, and make them in his image as his new gods. Jessica Cruz almost died, maybe did die, but in the process was infused with Omega energy that is bonded with her Green Lantern ring. And now she is working with a group of castoffs. You might recognize a cat from the Red Lantern team. Starfire's sister, Blackfire, the castoff Orion. But for this team, there is a feeling that they're right in the midst of a crucial opportunity. Well, it has to do with Epoch, one of the many so-called Masters Lords of Time, and a plan he has to rewrite time and correct all of the problems. It has to do with something he calls a revision mechanism. But before he can put his plan in place, one that Jessica already has doubts about, the team was attacked last issue, and sadly lost one of their great number, who had already been corrupted, but who Jessica believed still had an opportunity to be saved. These are her emotions as she charges in to face the turned Azrael, and why she's heartbroken at the effects that occur when Azrael is suddenly lost. With this comes an acceptance that the team as it is, is quickly falling apart, and that Orion continues to urge the understanding that once they have been changed by Darkseid, there is no hope for their future. A hope that Jessica has kept alive because of a series of messages that Cyborg has been kind enough to share with her, revealing ways that she might be able to fight back. Orion believes that this is untrue, and he tells her as much, that even these messages of hope are lies twisted by Darkseid. And yet in the depths of her despair, what I love about Jessica is she still believes that there's a way through. She still thinks that she can use one of those classic time travel tricks, go back in time, leave a coded message. Takes me back actually to a great Star Trek episode where the ship is caught in a loop and only Data can figure out what it is and send a message to the future so that the team can understand what to do. Of course, the message also has to affect the past because it's a time loop. And this is where time gets weird. What's a great moment here is that Jessica realizes that her plan has only worked partially. And that because of that, while she did get through to Cyborg, it was too late. The change didn't occur in time. He's still being corrupted. And yet he is aware and using her message as a mantra. Something for hope. Something I really believe in. Something I really enjoy. However... With the understanding now that Darkseid believes that Epoch's machine has the potential to rewrite all of creation in his image. Now the question becomes, how is it that Jessica can stop Epoch, stop Darkseid, and potentially still use this revision mechanism to save her friends? There's been some really wonderful moments throughout this series. What I love right now is on the edge of the reef in these tattered, broken spaceships 
They find Epoch. They are scavenging to try and create a future worth saving. And all the while, dark side forces press upon them. The wild, terrifying space feels dark, alien, and foreboding. The quarters of the shipwrecked vessels, vessels, vessels feel cramped and claustrophobic. The art captures all of this emotion and either presses it down upon us or reminds us of the harrowing possibilities should we leave the safety of those claustrophobic quarters. It really creates a wonderful feeling. And the one thing that I keep coming back to with Justice League Odyssey is the question of what will the team do when it realizes how much of that Justice Do More has already ended. If it has, we do know that Scott Snyder is potentially picking up some of those thread lines that were left off in his Justice League run and carrying them forward in another story. Will this story be a part of that? Or when it's all said and done, will the team arrive home to find that everything they've been fighting for has already moved out of the realm of importance and is just something left for those still blindly pursuing a mission? There's so many great elements involved with Justice League Odyssey. It was a thrill for me to review it this week for DC Comics News, and it's a pleasure for me to have it here as my third choice on episode number 55 of The Spinner Rack. It's a solid 5 out of 5 book, and a great opportunity for us to shift to my fourth choice. And for that fourth choice, it's my pleasure to bring you Justice League number 44 in a story called Cold War. Part 1, Monsters Within. The amazing Robert Venditti, whose work on Hawkman I cannot praise enough, and who, to my delight, has been writing Justice League storylines, teams up with Zermanico on art, with Romulo Fajardo Jr. providing colors, Tom Napolitano letters, Francis Manipal, the original cover, and a really fun Nicola Scott and Nick Kwok variant cover. It was a treat for me to open up this book and dive in and experience the introduction, which is a great moment from Venditti, where he uses an idea and phrasing that has an importance at the beginning of this story and quickly takes on new meaning by the time we come to its close. It starts off with the idea that everyone resents someone, whether it's an adversary, a colleague, a friend, and that... Most of the time, people harbor these resentments and bury them deep, and that's what makes it dangerous, because at some point, a tremble is something that can build, echo, resonate, and when it does, what you're left with can feel like a cataclysmic event. Justice League is responding to an alert from Arthur after one of his sea outposts is attacked, and when they arrive, they see him battling a creature that comes from myth. In fact, it comes from the very myths that are part of the history of Diana. These myths don't like her. One escapes, but they are able to capture a griffin as well as a manticore. They are angry. Their eyes are glowing green. They clearly dislike Wonder Woman, which is when she reminds everyone who isn't up on their Greek myth that she and her sisters, the Amazons, lock such creatures away in Tartarus, buried at the center of the earth. Now the big bad, Scylla, 
returns. The team breaks into an amazing fight and finally figures out a way to overcome the monsters. But that's not the only problem facing the team. And Batman's the first to recognize the green eyes, the shared similarity. But unfortunately, by the time he does, Venditti does that great job of coming back to the phrasing he used at the beginning of the book about how everyone resents someone. And what we discover is a powerful figure who is based in the concept of vengeance as the hand of vengeance for the Almighty, someone calling God, someone called the Creator, is making an appearance on the scene. And it appears that this control over resentment is not a random occurrence. Along the way, I'm going to encourage the fantastical nature of the wonderful mythical creatures, their power, their ferocity, and because of them, how we get to see the Justice League go into action. It's really quite a treat and one that I highly recommend. I love digging into the depths of the lore that is the basis for Diana's history. And there's something magical about when it interrupts our world. What intrigues me more, though, is that this was a magical introduction, a mythical one, one that now is pointing us to a much greater mythical figure and a really interesting idea about belief and how it affects who we are, what we want, and more importantly, what we resent. This was a great 5 out of 5 book that I was happy to pick up and share with you. Highly encourage you to check it out. And of course, let me know your thoughts. Listen to the end for all the great ways that you can do that. And that brings us to one of my favorite books that I've been reading. I'm talking about Lois Lane, issue number 10, part 10 of Enemy of the People, written by Greg Rucka, with art and cover by Mike Perkins, colors by Andy Troy, letters by Simon Bolin, and a really great variant cover by Tula Lotte. Where we are now is a moment in which we realize just how much Lois Lane has been peeling back the layers of a mystery that goes to the very heart of the DC Universe. In doing so, she has to help another character make this same discovery. Someone who was a witch, who was a powerful figure with great influence, and who currently is unaware of their past life. Renee Montoya is there on Lois Lane's behalf, there to provide an insight into what this multiverse is, how it exists, the quantum physics of it all, and the importance of what this means for their story. The idea that at any given time, people have come from other places, that in other worlds, we all exist as different incarnations. And through that, the dreams that we have known, the wonder that we experience is only a part of a wheel, just one segment of a great gigantic pie that makes up the many examples 
of who we are in relation to the multiverse and how many iterations of us there have really been. For this purpose, they believe that Jessica is Sister Clarice, that she was also a powerful member of a clandestine organization, and that her many other iterations make up who she are. And that's why she can create a magical defense and perhaps help spring a trap. Along the way, we see some great moments with Lois hanging out with Superman, who says that he just wants to have a call and then makes an appearance, covering up his desire to be present and protective of his wife, and in the process, revealing just how annoying it is to have someone show up saying they want to talk, and then who every 30 seconds has to rush off to answer an alarm, respond to a police call, and for the most part, wants to make you feel safe, even though what's important is the mission, and that in order to be successful, safety is not something that can always be taken into consideration. It's a great moment, though, when all of that is passed, when Lois and Clark finally get a chance to talk about trying to fix the big things, wanting to fix it, and how they both have experienced the feeling of being powerless. I know that this is a really tender moment, and in it, when Lois asks, well, what do we do when it feels like we're the only ones who are paying attention? Clark does that great optimistic thing and says, well, then we all have to shout louder. Now, with the plan in place, Jessica, a nun, whose identity is an intriguing twist and one I'll allow you to discover on your own, are working with Renee Montoya to spring their trap. Who are they waiting for? Well, it's a new villain on the scene, known as the Kiss of Death, who has had Lois in her sights before, but been unable to successfully complete her contract. Now, when the plot is finally sprung, there is this great experience and recognition that things don't always work out the way they should, the way we want them to. And because of that, this plan, despite all of its best efforts, is not going to have the results that the team actually hoped for. Unbeknownst to them, by the final page, an invisible clock has begun ticking. And the question as to whether or not this is something that is only going to affect one person or perhaps the entire group is something we'll have to answer in issues 11 and 12. I myself am looking forward to the harrowing conclusion and the tension which has quickly ratcheted up by the close of this issue. And that, my friends, brings us to the close of episode number 55 of the DC Comics News, Spinner Rack. I've been your host, Seth Singleton, and it's been my pleasure to share these books with you. You can catch us on a weekly basis, and the best way to do it is to subscribe to DC Comics News. We're on all the major podcast platforms, so whether it's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play, we're easy to find, easy to subscribe to, and a joy to experience. If you're listening on a different platform, please don't let that stop you. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button, rate and review. We know we're five stars, but we'd love to hear it from you. 
You can also let me and all the rest of us know what you think about this or any episode of DC Comics News Podcast Network. All you have to do is hop onto social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. Use that at symbol and DC Comics News. That's capital D, capital C, capital C, O-M-I-C-S, capital N-E-W-S. And when you do, we'll all get a chance to hear what you think, what you like, what you don't, and figure out how we can always learn from that and bring the best experience to you. I'm also going to encourage you that when you do subscribe to the DC Comics News Podcast Network, to be aware of all the great offerings available. There's not just the spinner rack, although I know we're great. There's also the weekly DC Comics News Podcast, covering all of the information coming to you from movies, TV, streaming, comics, and more. And on occasion, we have a few guest stars, interviewees, visitors, which make for an amazing experience. We also have newer content that has recently arrived, whether it's Steve J. Ray and his I Am The Night podcast featuring an episode-by-episode breakdown of the classic Batman the Animated Series, or our newest edition, the Foul-Mouthed Mad Love, a Harley Quinn cast designed only for adult audiences. If you love the show, you'll love the podcast. I guess I could say the same for Batman the Animated Series and I Am the Knight. Both hold true. Both are here for you and both are waiting to be experienced by everyone. Remember, all you have to do is subscribe. You'll never miss all of this great content. And because of that, we'll always have a chance to keep you in the know about what's happening here at DC Comics News and the DC Comics News Podcast Network. This has been episode number 55 of The Spinner Rack. I've been your host, Seth Singleton. It's my pleasure to join you each and every week. And with a hint of sadness, I must say adieu. Until next time, and as always, read more comics. Thanks, folks. See you again real soon.